Life at the borough was as different as possible from life on Privet Drive. The Dursleys liked everything neat and ordered. The Weasley's house burst with the strange and unexpected. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, your host, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that I was incredibly late on, like our current binge of Harry Potter, where, despite being the same age as movie Harry, I didn't read this series through until my mid-20s. That's the belated part. Now we're going back a chapter or two at a time, picking it apart, deep diving what's on the page, speculating about what isn't, particularly Dumbledore's role and his master plan. What did he know? When did he know it? And the motivations guiding the story, and of course, also infusing as much sarcasm as humanly possible. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge, and today we continue our reread of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets with Chapter 4 at Flourish and Blots. Before we get into it, this podcast will have spoilers. This series wrapped up in 2007. If you haven't read them by now, you are even later than I was. This podcast will also have adult language. You can buy them in the kids section of the bookstore, but I didn't read them until, say it with me, I was a grown-ass man. No patron shout-outs this week. Special announcement, though, in case you missed it last week, I'm happy to announce that we'll have our first of the season? Yeah, that's right. The first special guest of the season, first ever in Chamber of Secrets, if you will, on the podcast next week. His name is Garrett. We worked together in a past life. He currently manages a couple of radio stations. He's a sports talk host, and he also has a podcast called The Rankum Podcast. He wears a ton of different hats, including a giant pointy one, because he's a total Potterhead. I expect a fair amount of cursing, as much laughing as we can get out of it, a lot of borderline inappropriate humor, and a lot of getting sidetracked. And I'm excited about it. But that's next week. We're not there yet. So, In case you were obliviated or you got your Hogwarts letter late, last chapter, Fred and George and Ronald Billius Weasley flew an enchanted car across the country to break Harry out of Dursley Jail, cell block four on Prison Drive. Everything went off without a hitch, from breaking the bars off the window to picking locks and getting Harry's stuff from his old cupboard under the stairs, they avoided capture from Vernon after Hedwig screeched and woke him up uh, when they nearly left her behind, uh, I must mention. And somehow, nobody saw any of this shit going down because apparently flying sedans are normal in this particular suburb. But of course, they get caught by Molly MI7 Kids Weasley when they touch down at the burrow. She yells... She still feeds them like kings and makes them do chores until Arthur comes home and she turned her attention to him for enchanting the car in the first place. But we can't move on to this week's chapter until we close the book on our last chapter, which means we have to recap our Expecto Plot Changeo. This is the part of the show where we theorize on what would happen if we change just a small part of our story. What do we expect that ripple effect to be? Last chapter, I asked, what if Vernon woke up sooner and was able to stop Harry from escaping with the Weasley brothers? And we got some feedback on Twitter from the Nerd Blitz with Doom and Fitz. Shout out to them, and they expect that it would be something possibly similar to what happens in Goblet of Fire. And by that, they mean they expect the Weasleys would have shown up and rescued him. Hell, maybe even Dumbledore himself. And I think that they're onto something. From my perspective, this actually should have happened. When they jerked the bars off the window, let's be... Have you ever heard metal bars forcefully pulled out a brick? I don't think I have either. But I have heard it pull out of other hard stuff like concrete and other metal or a metal drill going through 
concrete or or brick it it's loud is kind of what i'm getting at it sort of resembles nails on a chalkboard except it's industrial sized nails on a haggard sized chalkboard my point is it's not quiet and not only should vernon have heard the bars being pulled off and clanging to the ground so would their neighbors so let's play that out just a little bit vernon wakes up catches him before they can get harry's trunk or hedwig so what does harry do does harry jump in the car without any of his stuff and just buy all new stuff including an owl sorry hedwig when he gets to diagon alley possibly but i don't think it's in character i think our little hero complex carrying preteen would go the self-sacrificial route he'd push ron back in the seat and yell for them to drive away and leave him behind as vernon is grabbing a hold of him so how's he get to hogwarts does he get to hogwarts of course he does he's harry fucking potter so how how does he get there molly said that she and arthur planned to get him if he didn't respond by friday that week maybe they show up and that's potentially hysterical molly weasley confronting the dursleys as she's taking harry away from their lack of care that's a scene that i want i also like the idea of dumbledore coming to retrieve harry himself maybe we get a prequel or an expedited version of him beating the dursleys over the head with alcohol that we're gonna get to in book six although this is dumbledore and he and harry aren't friends yet so he probably just sends hagrid Round two for the three little pigs? I'd take any of those scenarios, to be honest, and I might find them more believable than what actually happened. So I'm pretty much right on the same page here uh, with the nerd blitz with Doom and Fitz. So now, that wraps up last chapter's Expecto Plot Changeo, which means we need to do one for this chapter. So let me get my little selfie situation started here and this week's expecto plot change question from chapter four of chamber of secrets at flourish and blots is what happens to harry if hagrid isn't randomly in nocturne alley at the very moment that harry needs help let me know your thoughts to be included on the next episode of the podcast Now, this little video that I just shot will be posted on social media across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the TikTok. You can respond with your thoughts on any of those platforms or as a voicemail on my website, belatedbinge.com. Now, we shall dive into the events of this week's chapter with... Priority Incan Chapter. We've reached the point where our wands connect. Not the tips, just the streams, so we can recap what went down in the chapter we just read. This week, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Chapter 4 at Flourish and Blots, begins with Harry describing, as our narrator, how much different the burrow was from Cell Block 4 on Prison Drive. He's taking the reader through some quirky things about the Weasley's house, and I just want to spend a second trying to imagine what this is like. So here we go. Role play. I'm 12 years old, which is how literally no role play should ever start. If so, grab your shit, run away, and call the cops. Anyways, in this role play situation, it's perfectly acceptable to start with. I'm 12 years old. I've been living with my abusive aunt and uncle my entire childhood. I've been mistreated and lied to about everything whimsical and literally anything about who I am. I'm one year removed of learning about this magical world that was hidden from me my entire life. And since then, I have found out I'm rich. I belong to a secret society. I attended a mind-blowing new school full of gifted children. And I also saved the fucking world at 11 years old. Alright, now I just sound like the author, reminding you what happened in the first book of this series, as if you didn't read it, or listen to the first season of this podcast. But I say all of that to to set things up, and to 
ultimately say this. All of that is true. Magic is still new for Harry, but you could easily assume that after Hogwarts, it's it's hard to imagine a whole lot of surprises are left. It's kind of like being taught how to drive and being immediately entered into a NASCAR race, or taking one swim lesson and being thrown off the high dive. But for Harry, this is the first time he's ever been in a magical home. Not a giant boarding school, but a house where normal people live and kids grow up. They have dinner. They do chores. There's a talking mirror and a ghoul in the attic. And most of all, there's love in this house. He doesn't know what a loving family looks like in the muggle world. Now, add in magic and the fact that this family not only loves each other, but they all seem to care for him. And he's literally never experienced that. I'm imagining these scenes with Arthur, talking about just random muggle shit, or the first couple times Molly treated him as if she would her own son, and he then he, he experienced what having a mother in his life should actually look like. It's got to be overwhelming, right? And then, letters from Hogwarts arrive, including Harry's. And we get this quote, Dumbledore must know you're here, Harry doesn't miss a trick that man from Arthur and we're going down another rabbit hole so strap in how did Dumbledore know Harry was at the burrow and what does the process of sending these letters even look like like logistically speaking how did Harry's letter get here if you hadn't noticed yet on this podcast I know the answer to every single question can always be magic whatever that's not interesting to me. Uh, I want to pick it apart. I want to try to figure it all out. Not like the quantum mechanics of magical energy and its manipulation of atoms and whatever the hell other big words and science stuff that I don't understand the definition of would be. I mean the characters, their motivation, their arc, the purpose, and the impact on the story that's unfolding beyond names on a page and looking at the events that unfold beyond saying... It's magic. Now that I've cleared up nothing, let's break this down. If you can remember back to about two minutes ago, I asked two questions. First, how did Dumbledore know Harry was at the burrow? One possibility, Mrs. Fig. She saw he wasn't at the Dursleys anymore, and Dumbledore knew Ron and Harry were friends, so maybe, hell, I don't know, maybe even, uh, maybe old Figgy even saw the flying car prison break scene she's a crazy cat lady whose job it is to spy on harry who's to say she's not also a night owl by the way who's she spying for Dumbledore. easy to figure out that that's how he knew another possible layer is if you subscribe to my mi7 kids theory is that he intended for harry to be pseudo-adopted by the Weasleys, he may have even planned for it. So if Harry ends up not being at the Dursleys when he's supposed to, I think Dumbledore has enough to go off of to figure out that he's with the Weasleys. Next question, what does the process of sending these letters look like? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they're signed by Professor McGonagall, right? Um, fact check me on that. But in my head, there's literally no way she's actually writing them. She's way too important to be doing that nonsense. Does, does Hogwarts have an administrative staff of some kind? Here's a theory. House elves with their own version of a quick quotes quill that we later learn Rita Skeeter has, which is basically the way it works is it does the writing for you, and hers is designed to embellish, but I would bet that these quick quotes quills would have their own purpose and their own flair, I guess you could say, um, their own leanings of what they were designed to do, I guess, as the as the pen um, of the thoughts and how 
I'm losing my train of thought. Honestly, I need my own quick quotes quill. But I guess what I'm saying is I don't think all of them would work the same as Rita Skeeter's where it stretches the truth and basically writes shit that doesn't even happen. Uh, And ultimate embellishment, I think that you would almost magically program them to achieve your specific goal for what they're supposed to be writing for you i feel like none of that actually made sense so let's get back on track here um i would think that for these house elves uh, they would be designed for accuracy of booklists and student records you know their their grade their address their class schedule and then the letters are run through prof mcg's office who then signs them as like a stamp of approval, and then they go out. Right? So, if that's the case, if I'm not completely off base, uh, Dumbledore and Prof. McGee, they've been tight since, whatever, the 20s, if you think that the Fantastic Beasts are canon, but we'll say for roughly three decades now, for this particular book canon, um, before, you know, people start yelling at me Dumbledore would have just walked down to Professor McGonagall's office told her to change the address on Harry's letter and it's all set so I guess this rabbit hole is really a rabbit ditch because there's not a whole lot of digging we need to do anyway so this is part of the chapter where we see the book list that includes every book Gildor Lockhart has apparently ever written and we get a glimpse into the economic hardship that raising seven kids on one middle class income even with magic it's not easy it's not gonna be easy there's no way we also see another nod to Ginny's big crush on our little hero in training when she uh when he rather asks her if she'll be going to hogwarts this year which is a feels a little strange to me but maybe he doesn't know exactly how old she is uh whatever she just turns as red as her hair and nods because she literally can't speak around him if only she was a seer and could catch a glimpse down their future together hey hey we get a letter from hermione who's still kind of annoying at this point but in a loving way now rather than a uh kind of way and the kids all head up the hill to take turns riding Harry's broom and practicing Quidditch. Because apparently, they don't ha- if they don't fly too high, they can hide like behind the trees and muggles can't see them. And apparently, once again, the magic trace doesn't count for flying a broom. Now, I'll say this. This is consistent with the rules as we know them. But I will also say this again the rules seem a little loose and kind of well technically uh, aspect of magical law in my personal opinion oh well we also get another hint that percy is acting weird this summer he's locked in his room all the time and not really engaging with the family red herring alert And now, it's time for the main event of our chapter. Flu powder. And after making Molly look kind of dumb when she doesn't realize that Harry's never used the flu network... Duh. And that's not the last time that I'm going to be annoyed with how she's written in this section of this book. But, whatever. Harry watches Fred throw the powder into the fire, walk in, disappear... Flu powder. Uh, Molly starts to explain how all this shit works, and Arthur cuts her off so that we can have trial by fire. Literally. And Harry goes after Arthur. Molly and Ron are just continuing to shout tips and tricks. You know, keep your elbows in and don't get out too early and whatever else. I don't... I... We know where this is going before it happens we all know it's it's gonna go bad it has to go bad because they didn't tell him anything he has no idea what he's doing 
how it goes bad, though? Well, that's another story. He coughs on flu powder, and as he's saying where he wants to go, Diagon Alley, he ends up in the wrong place. But here's the rub. Which is also going to come up later. How the hell does stuttering Diagon Alley translate to Nocturne Alley? In literally any scenario. The movie tries to address this a little bit by making Harry say diagonally, which is also the wordplay for Diagon Alley. Woohoo, good for you. But even that doesn't make sense because unless we're supposed to believe that this form of transportation doesn't require an actual destination and that Nocturne Alley is located directly diagonal from the burrow and it just guessed how far he wanted to go i don't know i don't buy it in either scenario but it's it's in the story so that's where we are that's where we're going of course harry has no idea where he is he just fell out of a fireplace and broke his glasses and again the whole shouting don't don't get out too soon wait till you see fred and george like he didn't have choices here right he just jumped in the fire, flew around, and then got thrown out of it. So could he have still gotten out in the right place, or was he just doomed to show up in Nocturne Alley no matter what? Ultimately, the why the author brought us here becomes apparent very quickly. This is clearly a place with some creepy shit in it, and then we see Draco, and Harry hides in a cabinet, which... You can bet your ass we're going to talk about more in the divination segment of this podcast. Harry sees Draco's dad come in and the Malfoys together are selling some of their creepy shit so they don't get caught in a raid because I've heard that possession is nine-tenths of the law and apparently that's true in the wizarding world too. Draco's talking shit the whole time. Lucius is annoyed and... He's a shitty dad. And here's the Draco's apologist uh, ammunition for their argument outside of their collective crush on Tom Felton, where Lucius is his shitty dad, so Draco is not responsible for any decisions he makes ever. Whatever. Harry sees a couple more objects that are very key to the series that will also come up later in the opal necklace and the hand of glory that Draco asks his dad for when he starts getting berated about being a thief and how his, if his grades don't improve and he doesn't stop getting beat by a filthy little mud blood like Hermione Granger in classes at magic school he might as well be a thief because he's not going to be worth a shit in life either way I wasn't saying that Lucius wasn't a shitty dad totally is Anyways, Harry, you know, fumbles around, does his thing. When Harry gets out of the store, he literally thinks he's about to be kidnapped by a creepy lady in an alley before Hagrid rescues him, of course, and hauls him off to Diagon Alley where he was supposed to be in the first place. Thankfully, Hagrid was looking for whatever flesh-eating slug repellent or whatever it was called. He sees Hermione first, and she doesn't fix his glasses. In the first book or the second, she doesn't fix his glasses. But the rest of the Weasleys follow, and Arthur actually does. And we're headed to the bank, and Arthur mentions how he'd really like to get Lucius for something, because he's really intrigued that he's that Harry saw him you know, offloading some of his stuff, and he's like, ooh, he's worried. Yeah. It's kind of like the the detective thinking that he's about to get the bad guy for something. Um, and this is where Molly says to be careful and not to bite off more than he can handle or chew or whatever analogy she uses. I don't know. Um, but I bring this particular because it's kind of a useless throwaway line, except Arthur responds with, what, you don't think that I'm a match for Lucius Malfoy? And that seems a little not Arthur, right? A little defensive? And I bring it up because it's important 
for his mindset later on in this chapter. For now, we're getting money from the bank, and he, meaning Arthur, wants to take Hermione's parents to the bar to undoubtedly pester them with questions about muggle shit because he sees them exchanging muggle money for wizard money, and he gets giddy. Here's where we get a bit of a kick in the gut next. For the Weasleys, they're uh, they're broke. I mean, we knew that, but now we've seen their vault, and we see Harry's vault, who is very much not broke, and he's like trying to be super stealthy and kind of block the doorway or whatever and scoop some money in a bag real quick so they don't see, hey, this kid that we're taking care of feeding food off of our table is absolutely loaded. Now, a ton of people bag on Harry for not giving the Weasleys money. I get it. But he's also 12. And when you're 12, how do you walk up to grown-ass adults and say, Hey, I noticed you're poor, and you're taking care of me. So to reciprocate, I'd like to pay you from my pile of generational wealth. And then what scenario does the caring adult tell the 12-year-old, It's about time, you little rich shit it this doesn't happen in this book or any probably uh maybe harry should have tried harder sure but even in goblet when he wins the triwizard cup money he tries to give it to molly and she won't take it she's never gonna take it from his savings account it's not happening so give it a rest Anyway, the crew breaks into pods for an hour so that they can go shopping and do whatever. The next thing that actually matters in the chapter is when they meet back up at the bookstore, Flourish and Blotz. A name we've heard, Gildor Lockhart, is doing a book signing, and Hermione gets all excited. And Lockhart spots Harry in the crowd, snatches Harry up for pictures, and we can immediately tell that this guy is a total attention-seeking tool. He makes a big deal about how together they're worth the front page, and then he makes another big deal about announcing he'll be teaching defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts, and then makes another big deal about giving Harry free books, and you you get the point, right? Every, everything this guy does and says and thinks and will ever be is such a big fucking deal (sighs) not my favorite storyline in this book is this particular character but whatever he meaning harry gives the free books to Ginny, which does help save the weasley some money and before he can go buy his own books draco shows up just to be a dick Ginny stands up for Harry, which is a baby Ginny badass moment. Ron walks up, and Draco just continues laying into them like the bully that he is, talking relentless shit about how they don't have money. Awesome. And before Hermione can distract them, and Arthur can get the group out of there to, you know, stop an altercation between these children, Lucius walks up. And he starts talking shit to Arthur in front of his kids. And Arthur's not having it. And this is where that mindset that I mentioned earlier, when he said to Molly, hey, you don't think that I can take Lucius Malfoy? Well, he's ready to show that he can because he begins to kick his ass. Or try to. And I just noticed that in my notes I have a typo. And I spelled kick with an L. And that completely changes everything about this scene. Oh boy. We're going to go ahead and fix that. Okay. Hagrid breaks it up. And Lucius gives Ginny her book back. That You know, the one that he was using to taunt her before the scuffle. Because that's what grown adults should be doing to 11-year-old girls. From there, things settle down just a little bit, aside from Molly giving Arthur a bunch of shit uh, about fighting in public in front of his children, which, it's not the greatest look in the world, but, um, I mean, I get it. 
<laughs> if I'm honest, I get it. Uh, and good for him. Because, you know what? Lucius is a dick. And sometimes those people just need punched in the face. Hopefully my kid never listens to this because that's a lesson that she shouldn't hear. Although, uh, I gotta say that if she spends any time with my grandfather, she's gonna get that lesson anyways. His his solution to being bullied was always aim for the tip of their nose because if you can hit that spot, their eyes are gonna water and it'll be worth it. Anyway, <laughs> that's the chapter. It ends with Harry mentioning how he doesn't love traveling by flu powder and who could blame him, really? after that experience if if you're just going to jump into burning flames and end up in a sketchy neighborhood I don't think I'd enjoy it too much either so I guess that wraps up our chapter and we should jump right into our Explainiarmus it's time to disarm your reluctancy and explain how you can support this podcast Belated Binge is a fully independent production. I read the books, write the script, record the episode, edit the recording, pick and produce the sounds, manage the content schedule, manage social media, promote the podcast, and feed producer Jack. Any costs from equipment to software to website development, marketing, any of that comes out of my pocket. And despite how many times I've been told we look alike, I'm no Harry Potter. No half giant has ever taken me to a bank full of cash and said, hey, you're rich. Having a podcast takes a lot, and it's not easy, so your support is literally the only thing that keeps the show going. There are a few key ways you can support the podcast. First, word of mouth is absolutely huge. If you enjoy the show, please tell every one of your Potterhead friends to give it a shot. Also, many of the pod players now support a rating and review function. Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, just to name a few. And it takes about four seconds to leave a five-star rating on the app. This can be greatly impactful. If you have more than four seconds, and the app that you're using supports written reviews, that's even better. Think about how reliant we are on reviews. Whether you're buying something new or deciding what book to read next, we're always looking at ratings and reviews to weigh into our decision. Podcasts are no different and your positive review could be the difference in someone discovering the show and deciding to give it a chance. Another great way to support the show is engaging in the conversation yourself, whether it be answering the specific questions I pose during the show or on social media. Maybe you just have a theory of your own or you wanna leave some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and maybe even share it on the podcast. You can submit your thoughts by leaving a voicemail on the website, belatedbinge.com. Just click the little leave a voicemail icon on the page that you visit. If you don't like the sound of your own voice, you can also respond in written form by using the contact form on the website, leaving comments or DMs on social media. My handle is belatedbinge across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email belatedbinge at gmail.com. The final and perhaps most impactful form of support is to become a patron on Patreon. I've made a ton of updates to Patreon membership benefits this season and some goals to shoot for as well. There are currently six tiers available designed to fit any budget level ranging from $1 to $20 with all the bells and whistles. So benefits range from early access to ad-free versions of the show, recognition on the website, bonus episodes, patron shoutouts, show prep notes, insider participation, binge award participation, input on show content and future benefits, a drawing for a physical gift sent from me to you and others. I've also set some growth goals that'll unlock new benefits for existing tiers and maybe even adding some more stuff as we go. The first goal is to get 10 total patrons, at which point I will start a patrons Discord server. However you choose to support the show, thank you. I truly appreciate it. Now, let's get you back into the flow of the episode. Speaking of supporting the podcast, I wanted to send a thank you to Filmshake, 
who left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, Absolutely excellent show. I love the way he goes through the Harry Potter chapters. He's got a very engaging voice, but holy cow, he was noticing so much stuff that went over my head. Looking forward to whatever he tackles next. I love getting to read these reviews, so please keep them coming. And right now, it's time to jump into Lumos. Lumos. Let's pull out our wands, light the tips, but we're not blowing smoke. We're here to illuminate. Well, let's talk about the Grangers, shall we? Mostly because this is the first time we actually see them, and I don't think they come back. Ever. Hermione mentions them a couple of times, of course, but I think this is the only chapter in which their bodies are physically present in Harry's vicinity. So, (laughs) I guess, what is there to actually say about them? Um, Let's start here. We learn at some point that they're they're dentists, right? I I don't think that's a movieism. I think that's in the books, too. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Of course, uh, in Deathly Hallows, Hermione modifies their memories to forget that she exists and that they want to move to Australia, I think, is the choice that she makes. It's heartbreaking. Completely heartbreaking. And that's literally it. That's all we get. That's everything I know, or I think that I know, about Hermione's parents within the canon. The only other thing that I recall seeing is that originally they were supposed to be neighbors with the Potters in Godric's Hollow. That was an early version of the books, I guess, but it's an alternate universe that I would be quite curious to read. I assume that there's a fanfic that's jumped on this. If so, someone point me to it. Preferably if it's written well please. So if that's it, if that's everything that I got on the Grangers, is this the shortest and least illuminating Lumos segment of all time of this podcast? What are we going to talk about? Well, this segment is, it's less about shedding light on what I know or theories I have. This one's more about questions than I have, and maybe we can do a little theorizing on the fly. So let's let's start with this. These are two muggles in Diagon Alley. I assume that this is normal practice, due to the fact that Gringotts has a conversion station for them to turn muggle money into wizard money. If there's a station and an exchange rate, then it must happen pretty regularly. They didn't just set this up for Hermione's parents. Duh. And this makes sense, because Hermione isn't the only Muggleborn at Hogwarts. Not even when Harry's there. And there are, like, you know, centuries of students who have gone to school outside of the seven-year window that we see. Well, six and some change. But how many are just prancing around Diagon Alley on the regular? And how has the secrecy not been broken down by now? In my experience, people suck, and they love to gossip, so I find it kind of hard to believe that everyone just keeps their mouths shut because they're told to. Is it some weird form of the, uh, what, tongue-tying curse that Moody puts on Snape after he goes into the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix post- Dumbledore's death? Does every muggle family that learns about the wizarding world have some kind of tongue-tying light version that just doesn't let them tell anybody about it or something? I don't know. Is it some kind of giant Fidelius charm where they aren't the secret keepers, they're just in on the secret and thus can't? reveal it? I don't know. This is getting fairly juicy, actually. I'm kind of liking it. This is one of those episodes where I kind of wish that there was a co-host here so that I could throw this stuff at them and they could tell me I'm crazy or not crazy. 
pretty crazy in this moment because I just looked to my right where I know no human being is, but almost as if I expected there to be one to react to me. Maybe I should put a mirror there and then it'd be like conversation with myself. Okay, this has gone on long enough. Next, how do the muggles get in to Diagon Alley? We know that Hagrid has to use his wand umbrella to get in, and he's tapping the bricks in the leaky cauldron in a certain order or whatever, um, or tapping a certain brick what to, uh, I, what, I, I don't remember. Does, does Hermione have to do it for them now? Do they, do they have to be accompanied by their child in order to get in? What if, I don't know, what if they want to do some Christmas shopping? Do they need an escort, like a magical person escort? And how do they prove that they're supposed to be in on the secret in the first place? I kind of go back to that Fidelius charm. If they know it's there, people are like, oh, well, you obviously should be here. Do they need, do they need like a passport? Here we go. Is there a bouncer at the Leaky Cauldron checking muggle IDs? Is the secret actually out in the muggle world and there's literally an underground like muggle people making fake wizard passports? I don't know. Whatever. How do they feel? Uh, we're back to the Grangers out of the, well, I guess there's, I guess this is not just the Grangers perspective, but how do they feel about their child just leaving the muggle world? They spend the school year away from home. And then in the case of, let's zoom right back, you know, Hermione stays with the Weasleys during a lot of the summers. So, I mean, they obviously let her, but it's got to be impossibly difficult, right? Maybe that's just the dad in me talking. But I can't, I can't imagine seeing my daughter for like a couple weeks a year and then never again. It's brutal to think about the series through their eyes when i come to think about it so let's let's not uh how do you think they reacted the first time that hermione started showing magic uh do they think that they're crazy do they think that she's crazy do they think she's possessed do they think that it's what is what is going through their mind when their little girl that they love so much is like crawling across the carpet and all of a sudden she just levitates and she's crawling on thin air or something it's like what is happening the more i think about this family the more i see the bills adding up for therapy is there a muggle-born parent support group is there a wizarding world welcome packet do they have t-shirts last one who do we think showed up to tell them hermione was a witch and about Hogwarts. Teachers do this, right? So who? Was it Professor McGonagall? Was it Flitwick? Here's a funny one. What if it was Trelawney? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's headcanon solidified. Trelawney was definitely the teacher that had to go to the Grangers to let them know that what Hermione has been doing is magic and that she has a place at a magical boarding school, and that they're pretty much never going to see their daughter again. But the good news is, magic. Yay! Speaking of Trelawney, let's do some... Divination. It's time to highlight four moments in the chapter that foreshadow something to come in the future. This chapter, we're actually going to do this a little bit different if you're listening to this and you're this deep down the harry potter rabbit hole you've heard that this series is a frame narrative or ring or circle theory whatever the idea that the books are sort of reflections revolving around a center point many plot points in one you know book one are reflected in seven book two reflected in six three and five and then four is that center point it all revolves around which lays out this chapter is a big big old big book six foreshadow so all four of the foreshadows that i've chosen to highlight are paid off in the half-blood prince first 
the cabinet Harry hides in in Borgen and Burke's. This is a vanishing cabinet. The very vanishing cabinet that has a twin in Hogwarts. Thank you, Montague, or whatever that person's name is. Which, actually, didn't the twins lock him in that cabinet when he got stuck between the two and Limbo or whatever? So it's really the twins' fault that Draco learned about that cabinet. Because this cabinet is the one that Draco uses to sneak the Death Eaters into the school to kill Dumbledore. So is Dumbledore's death the Fred and George's fault? Interesting. The Hand of Glory that Draco asks his dad to buy him as our second foreshadow comes up in that same sequence. That's the object that only gives light to the Beholder, which is something that Draco needs because he purchases instant darkness powder from Fred and George's joke shop. And he drops it, makes everything pitch black, and uses the Hand of Glory to guide the Death Eaters from the Vanishing Cabinet into the school. So I ask again, is everything at the end of book six Fred and George's fault? Bleh. Three, the opal necklace that Harry sees in the shop that says, you know, very dangerous, do not touch, has claimed the life of, you know, however many muggles. This is the same one that Draco used in Half-Blood Prince to try to kill Dumbledore, but it actually almost kills Katie Bell. Bonkers. Now, what's the fourth one? The fourth one is Borgen and Burks. Period. The store. The one that Harry accidentally found himself in. That's a foreshadow in and of itself. Not just the objects that he comes into you know, contact with while he's there, but this is the very store that Tom Riddle went to work for after he graduated at Hogwarts. This is the store he was working for when he came into possession of two of his founder's objects that he turned into horcruxes. And this is all information that we learn in book Half-Blood Prince. I say book very emphatically because the movie skipped all of this shit and everything that made that my favorite book. But I'm not bitter. Let's give away some house points. house points. In true Hogwarts fashion, these points are completely subjective with no oversight and fully at my discretion. This week, I'm giving house points to Hagrid. 10 points for saving Harry's ass and breaking up the fight before Arthur got arrested or something. Although, I personally would have enjoyed seeing a little bit more of it. Arthur is getting five points for having the balls to knock Lucius Malfoy into the bookshelves in the first place and at least try to kick his ass until Hagrid broke it up. And then Ginny is also getting five for standing up to Malfoy when he's being a dick to Harry. Taking away house points from Lucius Malfoy, he's losing 25. 10 for being a shady, sneaky individual, and 15 more for shit-talking children about how much money their father makes and the bitch move that got him hit in the face, or at least deservedly so. It doesn't explicitly say that Arthur punched him. It just said he knocked him into the bookshelf. So I choose in my headcanon to interpret this as Arthur taking a big old swing and landing right somewhere. I imagine his aim would have been roughly side of the nose like right underneath the eye and Lucius is sporting a big old shiner for the next couple of days off page my head cannon I do with it what I please I'm also taking away 10 points from Draco for being a douchebag now I will add these all into my nerdy spreadsheet as soon as I create it cause I'm a slacker 
but I promise I will before it's time to tally up all of these points at the end of this season's Bingy Awards. Before we go, I have to acknowledge the moments in the chapter that were utterly ridiculous. ridiculous. It's not an episode of the binge if we don't call out what didn't make any sense. Starting with Harry ending up in Nocturne Alley at all. It makes no sense. I talked through that a little bit earlier. If it works that you step into the fire, say where you want to go, nothing Harry stuttered in the book or the movie sounds anything like Nocturne. If you just needed a way for him to get there and have the Malfoy plot point, name it something else. Something that sounds a little bit more like Diagon. I don't know, call it Dragon Alley. At least I could buy that if you could cough a little bit, make you know Dragon and Diagon sound kind of similar enough. Whatever. Uh, Gilderoy Lockhart. His entire existence in this series is ridiculous. And I can't wait to talk more about that. With that, we have reached the end of this episode of The Binge. As always, shout out to producer Jack, who I work like a dog. Remember to follow and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast player you're using. And if it supports a rating and review option, please leave one. If you're so inclined, check out the additional benefits available for patron members at patreon.com slash belated binge. I did a lot of work uh, putting together a whole new offering of what is available over there on Patreon for this season. So I would love it if you would go check that out. If you're reading along, next episode, we'll be covering chapter five. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Whomping Willow, and I will have my buddy Garrett with me. Until then, I'll see you next time on the Belated Binge Podcast. Harry took off his glasses and put them safely in his pocket before helping himself to flute powder. It definitely wasn't his favorite way to travel.